Section 13 of The Rainbow. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bryce Youngstown. The Rainbow by D. H. Lawrence. Chapter 4, Part 4. Will Brangwen came back after stupid scenes at Nottingham. He too was pale and blank, but unchanging. His uncle hated him. He hated this youth who was so inhuman and obstinate. Nevertheless, it was to Will Brangwen that the uncle, one evening, handed over the shares which he had transferred to Anna Lenski. They were for 2,500 pounds. Will Brangwen looked at his uncle. It was a great deal of the marsh capital here given away. The youth, however, was only colder and more fixed. He was abstract, purely a fixed will. He gave the shares to Anna, after which she cried for a whole day, sobbing her eyes out, and at night when she had heard her mother go to bed, she slipped down and hung in the doorway. Her father sat in his heavy silence like a monument. He turned his head slowly. Daddy, she cried from the doorway, and she ran to him, sobbing as if her heart would break. Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. She crouched on the hearth rug with her arms round him and her face against him. His body was so big and comfortable, but something hurt her head intolerably. She sobbed almost with hysteria. He was silent with his hand on her shoulder. His heart was bleak. He was not her father, that beloved image she had broken. Who was he then? A man put apart with those whose life has no more developments. He was isolated from her. There was a generation between them. He was old. He had died out from hot life. A great deal of ash was in his fire, cold ash. He felt the inevitable coldness and in bitterness forgot the fire. He sat in his coldness of age and isolation. He had his own wife, and he blamed himself. He sneered at himself for this clinging to the young, wanting the young to belong to him. The child who clung to him wanted her child husband, as was natural, and from him, Brangwen, she wanted help, so that her life might be properly fitted out. But love she did not want. Why should there be love between them, between the stout, middle-aged man and this child? How could there be anything between them but mere human willingness to help each other? He was her guardian no more. His heart was like ice his face cold and expressionless. She could not move him any more than a statue. She crept to bed and cried, but she was going to be married to Will Brangwen, and then she need not bother any more. Brangwen went to bed with a hard, cold heart and cursed himself. He looked at his wife. She was still his wife. Her dark hair was threaded with gray. Her face was beautiful in its gathering age. She was just fifty. How poignantly he saw her, and he wanted to cut out some of his own heart, which was incontinent, and demanded still to share the rapid life of youth, how he hated himself. His wife was so poignant and timely. She was still young and naive, with some girl's freshness, but she did not want any more the fight, the battle, the control, as he, in his incontinence, still did. She was so natural, and he was ugly unnatural in his inability to yield place. How hideous this greedy middle age 
which must stand in the way of life like a large demon. What was missing in his life that, in his ravening soul, he was not satisfied? He had had that friend at school, his mother, his wife, and Anna. What had he done? He had failed with his friend, he had been a poor son, but he had known satisfaction with his wife. Let it be enough. He loathed himself for the state he was in over Anna. Yet he was not satisfied. It was agony to know it. Was his wife nothing? Had he nothing to show, no work? He did not count his work, anybody could have done it. What had he known but the long marital embrace with his wife? Curious that this was what his life amounted to. At any rate, it was something. It was eternal. He would say so to anybody and be proud of it. He lay with his wife in his arms, and she was still his fulfillment, just the same as ever. And that was the be-all and the end-all. Yes, and he was proud of it. But the bitterness underneath that there still remained an unsatisfied Tom Brangwen, who suffered agony because a girl cared nothing for him. He loved his sons, he had them also, but it was the further, the creative life with the girl he wanted as well. Oh, and he was ashamed, he trampled himself to extinguish himself. What weariness, there was no peace, however old one grew. One was never right, never decent, never master of oneself. It was as if his hope had been in the girl. Anna quickly lapsed again into her love for the youth, Will Brangwen had fixed his marriage for the Saturday before Christmas, and he waited for her in his bright, unquestioning fashion until then. He wanted her, she was his. He suspended his being till the day should come. The wedding day, December the 23rd, had come into being for him as an absolute thing. He lived in it. He did not count the days, but like a man who journeys in a ship, he was suspended till the coming to port. He worked at his carving, he worked in his office, he came to see her. All was but a form of waiting, without thought or question. She was much more alive. She wanted to enjoy courtship. He seemed to come and go like the wind, without asking why or whither. But she wanted to enjoy his presence. For her, he was a kernel of life, to touch him alone with bliss. But for him, she was the essence of life. She existed as much when he was at his carving in his lodging in Ilkston as when she sat looking at him in the marsh kitchen. In himself he knew her, but his outward faculties seemed suspended. He did not see her with his eyes nor hear her with his voice, and yet he trembled sometimes into a kind of swoon, holding her in his arms. They would stand sometimes folded together in the barn in silence. Then to her, as she felt his young, tense figure with her hands, the bliss was intolerable, intolerable the sense that she possessed him. For his body was so keen and wonderful, it was the only reality in her world. In her world there was this one tense, vivid body of a man, and then many other shadowy men, all unreal. In him she touched the center of reality, and they were together, he and she, at the heart of the secret. How she clutched him to her, his body the central body of all life. Out of the rock of his form the very fountain of life flowed. But to him she was a flame that consumed him. The flame flowed up his limbs, flowed through him, till he was consumed, till he existed only as an unconscious, dark transit of flame, 
deriving from her. Sometimes in the darkness a cow coughed. There was in the darkness a slow sound of cud chewing, and it all seemed to flow round them and upon them as the hot blood flows through the womb, laving the unborn young. Sometimes when it was cold they stood to be lovers in the stables where the air was warm and sharp with ammonia, and during these dark vigils he learned to know her, her body against his, they drew nearer and nearer together, the kisses came more subtly close and fitting. So when in the thick darkness a horse suddenly scrambled to its feet with a dull thunderous sound, they listened as one person listening. They knew as one person they were conscious of the horse. Tom Brangwen had taken them a cottage at Cossethay on a 21 years lease. Will Brangwen's eyes lit up as he saw it. It was a cottage next to the church with dark yew trees, very black old trees, along the side of the house and the grassy front garden, a red squarish cottage with a low slate roof and low windows. It had a long dairy scullery, a big flagged kitchen, and a low parlor that went up one step from the kitchen. There were whitewashed beams across the ceilings and odd corners with cupboards. Looking out through the windows, there was the grassy garden, the procession of black yew trees down one side, and along the other sides, a red wall with ivy separating the place from the high road and the churchyard. The old little church, with its small spire on a square tower, seemed to be looking back at the cottage windows. There will be no need to have a clock, said Will Brangwen, peeping out at the white clock face on the tower, his neighbor. At the back of the house was a garden adjoining the paddock, a cowshed withstanding for two cows, pig coats, and fowl houses. Will Brangwen was very happy. Anne was glad to think of being mistress of her own place. Tom Brangwen was now the fairy godfather. He was never happy unless he was buying something. Will Brangwen, with his interest in all woodwork, was getting the furniture. He was left to buy tables and round-staved chairs and the dressers, quite ordinary stuff but such as was identified with his cottage. Tom Brangwen, with more particular thought, spied out what he called handy little things for her. He appeared with a set of newfangled cooking pans, with a special sort of hanging lamp, though the rooms were so low, with canny little machines for grinding meat or mashing potatoes or whisking eggs. Anna took a sharp interest in what he bought, though she was not always pleased. Some of the little contrivances, which he thought so canny, left her doubtful. Nevertheless, she was always expectant. On market days, there was always a long thrill of anticipation. He arrived with the first darkness, the copper lamps of his cart glowing, and she ran to the gate as he, a dark burly figure up in the cart, was bending over his parcels. It's cupboard love as brings you out so sharp, he said, his voice resounding in the cold darkness. Nevertheless, he was excited, and she, taking one of the cart lamps, poked and peered among the jumble of things he had brought, pushing aside the oil or implements he had got for himself. She dragged out a pair of small, strong bellows, registered them in her mind, and then pulled uncertainly at something else. It had a long handle and a piece of brown paper round the middle of it, like a waistcoat. What's this, she said, poking. He stopped to look at her. She went to the lamplight by the horse and stood there bent over the new thing, while her hair was like bronze, her apron white and cheerful. 
Her fingers plucked busily at the paper. She dragged forth the little ringer with clean Indian rubber rollers. She examined it critically, not knowing quite how it worked. She looked up at him. He stood a shadowy presence beyond the light. How does it go, she asked. Why, it's for pulp and turnips, he replied. She looked at him. His voice disturbed her. Don't be silly. It's a little mangle, she said. How do you stand it, though? You screw it on the side of your wash tub. He came and held it out to her. Oh, yes, she cried, with one of her little skipping movements, which still came when she was suddenly glad. And without another thought, she ran off into the house, leaving him to untackle the horse. And when he came into the scullery, he found her there, with the little ringer fixed on the dolly tub, turning blissfully at the handle, and Tilly beside her exclaiming, My word, that's a natty little thing. That'll save you lugging your inside out. That's the latest contraption, that is. And Anna turned away at the handle with great gusto of possession. Then she let Tilly have a turn. It fair runs by itself, said Tilly, turning on and on. Your clothes'll nip out onto the line. End of section 13. Recording by Bryce, Youngstown, 